that's so overlapping. Well, it turns out that John von Neumann actually uh, designed game theory to be based on a stripped-down version of the game of poker. He was very interested in poker, and he was actually asked specifically about why he didn't look at chess as the way to think about decisions, um, and he highlighted the things that I've talked about. He said, well, chess, chess isn't really a game, at least not in the academic sense, because it doesn't have uh, this element of luck and the hidden information. And because of that, he really put that into the category of a calculation, that assuming you had enough computing power that you could calculate all the way out to the end of the game and solve it, and we can see that we have solved simplified versions of chess. So uh, checkers has been solved by computers for, for quite a while, and tic-tac-toe has been solved by any reasonable 10-year-old. So if we can go on to the next slide. So what I'd like to argue, and I think what we're going to talk about today, is that uh, because we have this relationship between poker and decision-making, we really should be thinking about decisions as that. Uh, as bets, all decisions as, as bets. And the reason is that a decision is really a bet on a particular future based on our beliefs. So we have a set of beliefs. They inform the decision that we make. Any decision that we make, uh, we're investing limited resources. And when we make a decision, we're obviously foregoing any other decision that we might be able to make, investing whatever limited resource we are, whether it's money, time, happiness, health, um, it doesn't have to be money. And that uh, the decision that we make is hurling us toward uh, a future, but it's not a, a guaranteed future. It's a set of possible futures. And what we're doing is we're saying, I believe that whatever decision I make is going to, to get me uh, with a higher probability toward a future that's going to give me a return depending on what my values are, what I'm um, uh, investing. It's going to be better than any other decision that I might be uh, for going. And, and we can see this when we go back to that Pete Carroll decision. What was the bet that Pete Carroll made? Well, that by passing, he was going to end up in a better future than if he just handed off to Marshawn Lynch. Um, just so you know, the future where the ball gets intercepted it only happens between about 1% and 2% of the time. So that should give you a clue that that decision is probably reasonable. Um, the other thing is that by passing, he actually he, he creates a future in which he gets three chances at the end zone because if the ball is actually dropped, the clock stops, and he can take those two running plays um, that he has anyway. So it essentially gives him a very close to free option at the two running plays uh, because of this time management issue. So if he hands it off to Marshawn Lynch because uh, the only way to stop the clock is to call a timeout, he's only going to get two chances at the end zone. By passing, he's going to get three. Um, and for that option, he's only paying about 1% and 2% of the interception. So I, I think that I'll stop it here, um, and we can go into some Q&A. Yeah, uh, Annie, thanks so much. Uh, excellent. Um, so there's a number of things I want to discuss. First, um, you know, in thinking about process um, and process and decision-making. Um, you know, how do you think about separating luck from the quality of a decision and thinking about that in games of incomplete information? Um, yeah. So it's something that, you know, a lot of the people on the, on the line have to deal with, obviously, as you know, a lot of yeah. the time. Yeah, so thank you for that question. So the hidden information piece is what's really confounding because, um, obviously, uh, you know, if, if you have um, a coin that you can flip, uh, we can determine the mathematics of this situation pretty easily. So it's pretty easy to go back and figure out whether you're making a good decision. You just look at whether the proposition that you're being offered is plus equity for the coin flip. Um, but when you can't see the coin, 
uh, this becomes very difficult because we actually need a lot of iterations in order to be able to derive what the mathematics of the coin are. Uh, asking questions like, um, for example, is the coin weighted in some way? Does the flipper have control over the coin? Uh, does the coin have two sides or three or four? We obviously need a lot of outcomes um, in order to be able to determine those things. So the question is, how do you do that when you're only dealing with a small set of outcomes and it can get very difficult? Um, the interesting uh, thing about deriving the luck and skill elements is that I actually think that the only way to do it is, is to, as much as possible, separate yourself from the outcomes. Um, this is assuming, of course, that you, you don't have enough outcomes in order to be able to say something interesting um, about what the decision process might look, look like. So obviously, you know, if you have enough information that you can run a Monte Carlo, uh, it's, a, it's a different um, situation, or, or you have enough historical data. But even with historical data, you have to be very careful, because in order to get to a large enough N, you might be grouping together a lot of uh, data that shouldn't actually group together. So why do I think that you should be doing this counterintuitive thing of trying to actually analyze the decision in the absence of the outcome? Well, it's because of this problem of resulting. I think that the outcome casts a, such a large shadow over our ability to actually see clearly through to what the decision quality is that we're better off actually just not knowing the outcome at all. Um, and I think that we can see that really clearly with the Pete Carroll issue. We all know that the mathematics of that decision um, really have nothing to do with whether it turned out on that one play or not. And yet, when we know it was intercepted, we have this very strong feeling that the decision must have been poor. And when uh, we know, it, and if we think it was caught uh, for a touchdown, we have this very, very strong feeling that the decision was probably good. So I think this separation between um, outcomes and decisions is really important. And we can go in if you want to uh, a, a few strategies for actually isolating ourselves from those outcomes. You know, I'd like to actually go into those strategies because I think that's important for people to. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I think that the, fir the first thing is, as much as possible, try to analyze the decision in absence of the outcome. Um, and I think that that's really important. Look at what the information is that you have uh, available to you at the time. Make sure that you've done as much vetting of the information as possible. And, and that includes very good vetting of the information. So it's, in it's very, very important to be uh, uh, including dissent into the process. And you can do that either through red team, blue team exercises, so uh, you can have people argue against the prevailing uh, opinion or what your opinion or your prediction of the future is and actually have people set aside whose job it is to argue against. Um, you can obviously be acting, uh, actively seeking out dissenting opinions um, and really trying to incorporate um, those into the decision process in order to get your decision process better. And then vet that process uh, with the mathematics that you can that you have access to and the information that you have access to in order to derive the model uh, for the decision going forward, and then really map out what you think the probability of different outcomes are going to be and memorialize those. The reason why I say you must memorialize those is because otherwise what happens is once the outcome occurs, you sort of like forget all of the other outcomes that could have occurred. What happens is that you may have a map of the future that includes, say, like, you know, a 5% chance of some disastrous outcome. And when the disastrous outcome occurs, cognitively, that becomes 100%. Um, and that's really, uh, obviously, hindsight bias where it becomes like it was inevitable. And now you're going to go in and you're going to tweak that decision and you're going to start second-guessing that decision in a way that you won't if you have memorialized, oh, okay, that was a 5% outcome. 
And then what, what you should really just be using the outcomes for is to go and look and, and, and take a second look at whether there was information that maybe you could have known um, that you didn't actually do enough uh, searching for. The, the, se the second way that I think um, you can get yourself away from uh, the outcome is, is to actually find a group of people who, who don't know the outcome or describe the decision in a way where uh, they wouldn't be able to derive what the outcome was because they wouldn't know exactly uh, what the decision was about um, and, and ask them about uh, the decision and the decision process. These are people who are going to be um, unbiased because they, weren't, they aren't vested. They aren't endowed to the decision that you made and really try to get, to get some good uh, feedback from them on what they think about the decision. But the key is to only tell them uh, up to the decision point that you made and not tell them what the outcome was. So leave them the blind to the outcome and help them to have you analyze the decision without knowing the outcome. Another thing yeah. you can do with that, group, with that same group is actually tell them the decision and give them the opposite outcome. So in other words, for example, like just to use the Pete Carroll example, if you wanted to analyze the decision and the quality of the decision to pass the ball, go find a group of people who don't know how that turned out and tell them that the ball was uh, caught for a touchdown. Um, and also you can tell another group that the ball was just dropped um, and try to get them to tell you uh, to analyze that decision for you. And that's going to start giving you a lot uh, higher fidelity on what's luck, what skill, what you might have missed, what you could have changed. That's interesting, yeah. Um, a lot of things, you concepts you bring up is uh, similar to, I think, what Ray Dalio tries to implement at Bridgewater, part of his book, and I think relevant for investors. Um, you mentioned, um, uh, and I read it in an article in the book, um, you know, people throw around odds a lot uh, mm -hmm. in our business. 30% is thrown around a lot, and that's usually <laughs> thrown around as a, as a low probability event. Like every uh -huh. year, for example, people people will say recession is you know twenty percent odds, and so I want you to speak to um, you know um, in your previous career, you know, you know when you what's happened in periods of thirty to forty percent probability. <laughs> yeah. So uh, first, let me just say something that you know there's two different ways that you can use probability, and I want to make sure that we're using it in the proper way. So one of the ways that we can use uh, probability is actually to defend ourselves from people resulting on us. So if we know that uh, when there's a bad outcome, people are going to blame our decision-making process, um, then we can use probabilities defensively. In other words, not as a way to actually truth-seek or as a way to really drill down in what to the probabilities are of a variety of futures, but just to say, well, uh, I told you that possibility is 30%. So uh, in that case, if it doesn't happen, well, okay, uh, you know, then I said it was only 30%. Or if it does happen, you can say, well, that was 30%. So in, in that case, you're kind of using it as a defense. There was an interesting article about this 30 or 40% with pundits, that they like to throw that number out because it's the number where you're sort of like good if it happens, but you're also good if it doesn't. It's like just high <laughs> enough um, that you can say, look, I included that in my decision, and it's just low enough yeah. that, you know, if it doesn't. So you want to make sure that you're not doing that. And, and I think that in order to make sure that you're not doing that, you need to have good people around you who are going to poke at you to cause you to really defend that, that, that number and to make sure yeah. that you're really giving a, a, a good case, a good mathematical case for why you think that that's the probability. Um, that being said, I, I do think, and I use the example of the election, 
that one of the problems that we have when we're working uh, in a world that is really uh, that where the uncertainty is really baked into what we're doing, and we understand that sometimes even a majority, uh, sometimes even a, not a majority, but close to the majority of the time, we may not have a good outcome because we're looking uh, to express a small edge over a long period of time, right? So what that means is that there's going to be a lot of short-term losses uh, that go along the way. Um, I think that one of the problems we do have is that because of hindsight bias, because of when outcomes occur, um, we sort of shift to thinking that that was 100%, that we're very vulnerable in a world where uh, edges are going to play out over time to people really taking short-term data and, and really uh, uh, having that cast a very long shadow over their, their judgments about whether we're doing a good job or whether we're making good decisions. And, and that's where, so uh, for example, I mean, one of the, the, the best examples that happened recently was Nate Silver, who we know is quite a good forecaster. Um, had Trump to be between, I think it was about 30 to 35 percent right at the end of, uh, of the election cycle. Um, and of course, we know what happened on November 9th after Trump won. Everybody declared that the pollsters were wrong, that they had completely gotten it wrong, as if 35 percent isn't, isn't a super common um, occurrence. It, it happens as often as we know, as Monday, Tuesday, and half of Wednesday. I mean, this is, this is not <laughs> uncommon. Um, and yet, people really turn that into a certainty. Like, why didn't you tell us for certain that Trump was going to win? And of course, that one, uh, that one election doesn't say much about Nate Silver's abilities. You would need to look over the course of his history of forecasting and see what his historical record is, um, which is actually very good. And I think that this is the problem that we all have. And it's the reason why I think within, within your group, within your pod, memorializing these futures in advance and really assigning these percentages and continuing to do that so that then over time you can go back and check to see if your estimates are looking pretty good as you start to collect more and more um, outcomes off of these estimates. Um, and, and that way you're really actually protecting yourself, your own group, and, and by the, yourself from resulting on yourself because we all have a tendency to result on ourselves as well to say I should have known. Right, and so by memorializing these futures and really trying to pin these probabilities down as best as possible, make your best estimates, um, and then keeping them somewhere for, you know, as in a database to start check your, checking your accuracy against that. I think that we all do better with, with uh, really focusing on the process as opposed to the outcomes. Yeah, and then you, you touched on a little bit here and there, but I want to, you know, hammer home the point only because I get questions a lot where, it's something along the lines of X, Y, Z happened. Does that mean the market's going down a lot or the, the rally is over or, you know, X, Y, Z happened? And does that mean we're going up, you know, 20%? When it gets to the binary world and right. you talk a lot about calibrating all the shades of gray, so I would love you to speak to that because I think it's something that's uh, important for people to, to hear. Yeah, I think that in general we're really looking for yes or no answers, um, and we can see that in the language we use, right? We, we say right and wrong a lot. Um, you know, what we don't say is, uh, well, it's somewhere in the middle. Like, I, I have this belief that something's going to happen and it's 60%, or actually it's not one or the other. It's, uh, there's a lot of different ways that this could go, and let me try to start mapping out those scenarios for you and taking a stab at those scenarios. I think one of the best ways to kind of get to what the shades of gray are. Um, there's two ways. One is when we're thinking about our beliefs, if we really think about, well, what if I had to bet on it, right? What if someone actually challenged me to a wager 
on this belief, that, that actually exposes the shades of gray in your own beliefs. And we can think about that uh, for like a, a really simple belief like um, Citizen Kane won Best Picture. Um, it feels like Citizen Kane is supposed to have won Best Picture, by the way. I mean, it's considered one of the best movies of all time. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't seem that it possibly could not have. So if I were to declare Citizen Kane won Best Picture, and then you said to me, well, do you want to bet on that? What happens is it really exposes my uncertainty. Because now I start asking myself a, a whole set of questions. Like, well, hold on. You know, when have I ever actually looked at that? And I have have I looked it up to see whether it, it won Best Picture? Am I just making that assumption? Um, you know, what what other pick, what other movies came out that year that might might have won? Do I know what any of those are? Um, how often is it that the movie that I think might be Best Picture uh, doesn't win, or the movie that historically ends up being you know the have have more historical legs ends up not having won. I start to ask myself those kinds of questions, and then I actually ask myself a couple of really important questions. What do you know that I don't know? That's a really important question because I start thinking about what your perspective is or what your information on the topic might be. Um, and then I also might now start approaching my uh, for myself from a skeptical point of view. Um, I might ask myself, why am I wrong? Um, and that's going to cause me to like pull Google out. So that that's a way to really start to expose the shades of gray. The the other way to to actually expose expose the shades of gray is is to actually try to do some mental time travel. Um, and I particularly like the methods of backcasting and premortem. So um, if X, Y, and Z happen, uh, I think the market is going to go up. For example, let's say it's going to go up 20%. Um, do a backcast, which is okay. It's you know a month from now and the market is up 20%. Why do I think that that probably happened? But then ask yourself the opposite question, which I think is the thing that we tend to miss, and why we lose the shades of gray, which is it didn't go up as predicted. Like I, I, this prediction actually failed. Why why did that happen? And then what will happen is you'll start to expose all the other things and all the other influences and all the other ways that the market might go by really doing that kind of time travel. It didn't go up. Why? And asking your, yourself that that kind of pro, prospectively negative uh, question, and I think that you end up getting down into the nitty gritty a lot better that way. Yeah, I love the concept of the the, the, the premortem. Um, it's something I think I need to do, and everybody needs to do more of. But I, thanks for bringing that up because it's a, it's an excellent way, in my view, to think about things. So um, if I could just make one uh, last comment, because Annie's been very generous with her time. You know, one of the big takeaways and I highlighted this from her book is, you know. When chances are known, you become more tethered to rational decisions, which is what you, um, you know, outlined here. Um, and when they're not known, uh, you become more tethered, if you will, um, to right or wrong. And that's why, and I'm making a comment here, it's funny when I see charts of what happened in the past, and there's two charts that correlate with each other, and you just say, this, this is what happened in the past, therefore it should happen in the future. And a lot of people look at what happened without asking why, which is kind of a, kind of a version, I think, of what you're talking about, but um, in any event, uh, if you have any last comments, Annie, we're we're up on time here. I left, I took you for a little longer than I I promised, so I apologize. Um, if you have any last thoughts, you you want to yeah. you want to yeah. I I have two last thoughts. I mean, one thing I just want to come back to that that premortem, which actually I think is relevant to what you you just pointed out, because uh, obviously you can do this in the past too, right? Uh, argue yeah. against like, well, why why aren't these two things correlated? Why why do we think if these two things happen together, we wouldn't necessarily see that see that same 
response from the um, market. One of the reasons why I think that uh, premortems are really important is that we all have this we all have a tendency toward team player. You know, there's there's the band bandwagon um, effect. There's you know false consensus. There's uh, stat. You know, there's all sorts of things that make us uh, want to cheer ourselves on and think that our predictions are right. And that's why the backcasting, which is just I, I have this prediction and it worked out, is something that's very natural. I don't think that you need to necessarily instantiate that into any team or into your own process because that's what sits naturally there. It's getting down into the skeptic side. Why am I wrong? Why do I think this might not work out? That I think is so incredibly important because we intend, tend to sort of ignore that side of the world. So I really would highly recommend that people start thinking about how to, you know, create red teams for themselves, which is another way to get at that sort of the, the negative side, like the not working out, arguing against yourself, why am I wrong kind of questions, um, and, and make sure that you're instantiating pre-mortems. Um, second, I just want to answer the question that's up here, which is the toughest laydown that I ever made. Um, so uh, I actually have a mock story uh, that you can go listen to, uh, which talks about this very tough laydown. It was a situation where um, I had two tens, and I was against a player who uh, it was in the tournament champions actually against um, Greg Raymer. Uh, someone had raised in first position. Uh, I had re-raised with two tens, and then um, uh, Greg Raymer had uh, moved in on me, um, or did, I had yeah I had two tens, and Greg Raymer had moved in on me. Um, and so it was a it was a particularly different uh, difficult situation because I can really only uh, lay my hand down if he has a pair that's bigger than mine. If anything else, I have to call. Um, and it took me a very very long time to make make the lay down. Um, I thought about it for a really really long time. I laid the hand down. Remember, it's hidden information, so this this decision was really bothering me. Um, but Greg Raymer, about two hours later, got knocked out and did me the huge favor of exposing his hand to me by as he. As he walked out, he whispered into my ear, that was a really good lay down with two tens because I had kings. So I got out of my uh, incomplete information situation into a situation where the information was complete, which allowed me to actually relax and play much better for the rest of the tournament. So I did just want to answer the question that was sitting up here. Oh, wow. Oh, cool. Thanks for doing that. So Annie, uh, thanks so much for your time uh, to everybody. Thinking in bits, uh, making smarter decisions when you don't have all the facts, please read it. Uh, I've read it. I know a number of you have read it since we've sent out the, the links. Thanks for that. Um, and uh, thanks again for joining us, Annie. This was awesome. Really appreciate it. Um, have a wonderful weekend. To everybody else, have a wonderful weekend. And thanks so much for joining us today. Yes, thank you, everybody. Yep. Thanks, Annie.